Welcome everyone. There must be like a stench in this part of the room because like no one ever sits in this front part. Nathan, it might be you playing drums. You just get so, thank you. Nathan, give it up for Nathan. Coming to the front, taking one for the team. Yeah. <laughs> um, if it's your first time, thanks so much for joining us. My name is Russell, I'm one of the pastors here. And as you just heard, we are starting a new series today, which I'm very excited about. We're calling it The Paradigm and we're examining the book of Exodus. <laughs> now, why the book of Exodus called the paradigm? Glad you asked. So this is gonna be sort of like our defining definition. It's gonna uh, lead us through this series. And it's gonna, we're gonna be in the book of Exodus for a while, which I'm really excited about. And this comes from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. And he says this way. He says, the book of Exodus is the meta-narrative of hope. The book of Exodus is the meta-narrative of hope. Now, a meta-narrative is an overarching story or storyline that gives context, that gives meaning, that gives purpose to all of life. And this meta-narrative, which we find in the book of Exodus, is a paradigm or paradigmatic. That is to say that this book is an archetype. Within this story, we find all stories. Within this story, we find the blueprint for the world. We find the cosmological drama. I'm giving you lots of monikers. Take which one you like. The paradigm, the cosmological drama. Originally, I wanted to call it the cosmological drama, but then I felt too pretentious. I was like, nah, I can't do that. But I like it. In this story, we are finding the contours, the skeleton, which essentially any people in any time in any continent can look at this and find an understanding of their own zeitgeist, their own context. This story, friends, I wanna contend is the one story. This story is the one story, and to know this God, the God of Jews and the God of Christians, is to know how God will work in any period, in any time, and how God will work in your own life. As Jonathan or Rabbi Sachs says, no story has been more influential in shaping the inner landscape of liberty, teaching successive generations that oppression is not inevitable, that it is not woven into the fabric of history. The God of freedom calls on us to be free. This story, the book of Exodus, it inspired the English Puritans when they came to a new land searching for religious liberty. It is stamped on the seal of the United States by both Jefferson and Franklin. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s last sermon, he spoke of a promised land that he may not get to with the African-American people. This, I want to contend, is the fundamental story of the world. And to know this story is to see it everywhere. You see it all over the place because it's the archetype. Anyone finds it. Frederick Nietzsche called Judaism, and you could extend this to Christians as well, the slave revolt in morals. Yes, precisely. In this story, we know, we see the categories that we realize that Pharaoh was not just Pharaoh in thousands of years ago, that we have Pharaohs all over the world right now, that we have the people of God that we have daughters of Pharaoh, that we have midwives. These are not only historical figures, but they're also categories that we can find ourselves within in the present day. And this, this, uh, this 
series will be particularly pertinent for us as Americans um, because, and I think I've quoted this before, but this is one of my favorite definitions of Americans. And it comes from Stanley Hauerwas, of course. And he says, America is the exemplification of what I call the project of modernity. The project is the attempt to produce a people who believe that they should have no story except the story that they chose when they had no story. What's he saying? He's saying in America, the American dream is the belief that you can write your own story. It's, it's uh, every immigrant knows exactly what this means. You can leave your land, your home, come to this new land and be whatever you want. And part of that I would agree. I love the idea of second chances. I love the idea of fresh starts, love that. But I would disagree with the premise that therefore since we forget about it, therefore since um, we can write off the first part of our story. No, that is still hugely beneficial to who we are. But in America, we have this idea that we get to write our own story. But we fail to realize that so much of our story has already been written by the time we arrive at a consciousness that desires to write it ourselves. I remember when Anna and I were being um, assessed, the, the deem, they, were, they were determining if we were emotionally qualified to plant a church in New York City. Um, they said we were, just FYI. But part of the science which blew my mind was that by the time a child is six, 80%, I think it was 80%, 80% of the child's um, habit patterns their, their ways of responding to their environment, subconscious too, not like conscious response, but 80% of a child's response, subconscious response to their environment has already been formed in them by the time they're six. I mean, that just goes to show that so much of who we are, we really didn't get a say in. We really didn't get to choose so we can attempt to, to write the rest of our story, but a lot of our story has been written for us. What socioeconomic class we were born into, what ethnicity we were born into, where we were born, and all the cultural trappings that go with understanding and making sense of all of these factors. And so I wanna contend that this story is your story. Whether you're a Christian or not, and just so you know, one, one of the, uh, the, first, the first pillar of Hope Brooklyn is that we're crowds and disciples, which means you don't have to be a Christian to be here. But I wanna say, even if you're not a Christian, this is your story too. And to step further that you were made for this story. And I realize by saying that, I might offend you a little bit. You're like, what? A Bible story? And you're saying that this is my story, that I'm, I'm within this? Yeah, that's basically what I wanna prove to you over the course of the next couple months. So you gotta come back, you know, that's the teaser. But I like how J.R.R. Tolkien says it. He says, pay heed to the tales of old wives. It may well be that they alone keep in memory what it was once needful for the wise to know. In America, we love what's new. We love to forget the old and write the new. But I wanna contend that so much of what it means to understand ourselves, so much of what it means to know this God is to know our history, to know old wives' tales, 
Because in that, that contains what is most necessary for the wise to know. So, the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus opens with an interesting character, which you probably missed, um, but it's super theologically important. The first line in the book of Exodus is this, and these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt. The first character, the first Hebrew character in Exodus is a vav, just like a stroke. And a vav in Hebrew means and, and. So the very first word in Exodus is and, and these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt. Now that's an interesting way of starting a book. Why do you think the author starts with an and? I would contend that he does so because he wants you to know that this is a continuation of a much longer story. That in fact, when you come to Exodus, you're actually coming into the middle of something that has a history already. This is not the very start. And these are the names. And that first line, and these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt, the first six words are the exact same words of Genesis 46.8. And for those who are unfamiliar, Genesis is the first book of the Bible, and then Exodus is next. Though, for many Jews, they believe that Exodus is the first book of the Bible. Genesis is just the prologue. Genesis is the primeval history. It's, um, for any Lord of the Rings fans, it would be like the Lord of the Rings is the first story, but the Silmarillion is sort of the prologue that gives context. It's important, but the, the, the main story is the Lord of the Rings. The main story is Exodus. And the author wants you to know from the very first line, and these are the names, the same words from Genesis 46, 8, the end of Genesis. He wants you to know that this is a longer story, that Exodus is the second installment of a story. And you read on in the first chapter and you realize he's making those connections between Genesis and Exodus. In Genesis chapter 15, God comes to Abraham. And for those of you, um, again, who are unfamiliar, Abraham is sort of the, uh, the progenitor of, of Israel, um, who, which is God's instrument. Israel is God's chosen people, his instrument of salvation for the entire world. But in Genesis 15, God says, says to Abraham, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. But I will punish the nation that they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. And we read in chapter one that this is coming to pass. That Hebrews, uh, the Hebrew people, are slaves in the land of Egypt. In Exodus 1-7, we're told, after he lists the names of the sons who came to Egypt, the author says the Israelites were greatly fruitful and multiplied very, very exceedingly, such that the land was full of them. Anyone who knows uh, Genesis as well, it echoes the same language as Genesis 1, when God creates Adam and Eve and says, be fruitful and multiply. I had a pastor say, this is the only commandment that humans have ever obeyed fully. <laughs> he told them to be fruitful and multiply, and we read in the start of Exodus, and they did. They multiplied, they grew exceeding. And then you see an introduction of a word, a very important word for our purposes. The word is am. Now in Genesis, the word constantly was mashik, which means family. 
But now we're told that the Hebrew people are not a family, they're an am, they're a nation, they're a people. So where Genesis was the prologue of a family, the family has become a people, and the other nations are taking notice that this people is really, really big. Now why is this important? That the first thing we realize when we come to the book of Exodus is that we are being thrown into the middle of a story. We're not reading the start of a story. We're being thrown into something that's already been happening, a much longer story. It's important because it already counters the project of modernity. You're born into a story, friends. You're born into a story. So much of who you are has been formed without your consent. You're born into a people with a history. You're born into a family with a history. You're born into a skin color with a history. Now you get to choose where it goes from there. But know your history, that's important. We don't just get to obliterate the first pages and pretend as if they never happened. We'll find actually in just a couple minutes that that's really dangerous when we don't know our history. But already, already we are thrown into the middle of a story. Humans are born into a world which is new for them but has been going on for a long time with lots of old wives' tales to teach us the road. And for Christians, the gospel, when the gospel describes someone coming to faith in Christ, they don't start, even in the idea of being born again, it's still a realization that there has been a life that's been lived. And we can't just write that off. It has pertinence for who we're gonna become. Scars remain. Jesus does not say who you were in the past is, I don't wanna think about it, I don't wanna look at it. He says, no, I wanna heal it. I wanna redeem it. The gospel, when it describes someone coming to faith, Usually the language is almost being awoken into a middle of a story. Uh, you've probably heard me say this before, but The Matrix is one of the best gospel movies. It is, I'm not joking. The Matrix pretty much explains what's going on. You're awoken to a reality that's been going on all around you and you never saw it. You're awoken into a story. Adam and Eve were awoken into a story that had already had some pages written that they didn't get to choose. So as Christians, when we read of a story being a continuation of a much longer one, we need to take heed of that. For Christians, even though the New Testament describes who Jesus is in the first church, it is very much formed by the people of Israel. And if we don't know their story, we don't know ours. And to know that story, to know that name requires truthful remembrance. I was reading in the news this week um, that there's some developers in Harlem that want to change the name of part of Harlem. I don't know if you saw that, but they want to change it to Soha, south of Harlem, as a way to echo Soho. Um, and Understandably, there are community leaders who are saying you can't do that. And I would agree with them. Because it's not as simple as just changing a name. What is in a name? A lot's in a name. There's a lot of history in that name, Harlem, for both African Americans and for all Americans. That to change that name over the course of, maybe it doesn't do anything in five years, but in 50 years, in one generation, two generations, we will lose so much that we need to remember. So there's a lot, it requires truthful remembrance. And we're told in Exodus that a new king arose. 
a new king over Egypt who what? Who did not know Joseph. He did not know Joseph. And this new king makes a horrifying commandment. He says, there are way too many Hebrew boys or Hebrews, so what I want you to do, midwives, is when the Hebrew women give birth, if it's a boy, kill it. If it's a girl, let it live. Now, why is that important? It's important, friends, because fear and historical amnesia make us do unthinkable things. And no one knows, just so you know, no one knows fear like those in power. Those in power use fear as a tool, as a way to hide their fear that they're gonna lose power, that there's someone behind them about to stab them in the back. See, fear and not knowing your history gives rise to horrible, horrible things. Joseph, what are we told? That the new king did not know Joseph. Joseph was a name with no context anymore. Joseph became the other. Joseph became a type. Beware when a person becomes a type, friends. When a person becomes the other, when a person becomes a type, when we don't know their name or their story anymore, horrible things can happen. When Christians cut off their history, when they think that the Old Testament is no longer binding on them. You can get examples of the German evangelical church siding with Third Reich propaganda. That can happen when you don't know your history. But there's also something else that's really, really amazing. The book of Exodus, so this new king arises and he doesn't know Joseph. Joseph has, that name means nothing to him anymore. He's just a type. He is a stereotype. And so that gives rise to a horrible commandment, kill all the boys. But Exodus also opens with a remarkable story. In fact, it's the first recorded instance that we have of civil disobedience. The first recorded instance of civil disobedience. Shipra and Pua, who are Hebrew midwives, they are essentially, they're told, kill all the boys, but they don't, and they lie to the king. And they say, man, the Hebrew women, they're, they're not like Egyptian women. They know how to give birth. <laughs> they lie to the king, which is super remarkable. Here's why. Because what's at stake, says Rabbi Sachs, is the theory of the moral limits of the state. Friends, what you have here are two contrasting political theories. And one is introduced that is thousands of years ahead of its time. It was not until John Locke in the 16th century that we developed an idea that human rights, the equality of human rights, could be the basis for a government. That wasn't until the 16th century. In the Exodus day, and even we see it in parts of the world today, the monarch is divinely ordained, divinely instituted. The monarch is even half God. Therefore, to resist the king's edicts was to resist God himself. To challenge the king was to challenge reality itself. You see how radical this is. 
Rabbi Sachs says, biblical monotheism was a revolution thousands of years ahead of its time. The Exodus was a redrawing of the moral landscape. Because if the image of God is to be found not only in kings, but in the human person as such, then all power that dehumanizes is ipso facto an abuse of power. Now, lots of people who aren't Christians, they ask the question, why, and Christians, why does the God of the New Testament seem so different from the God of the Old? And in some ways that's true, but then you also have this. You have this, where God interjects a political theory that is way beyond the imaginative boundaries of the day. Friends, what is going on in this act of civil disobedience? Essentially, we are seeing something super important to God's nature and to God's politics, to God's kingdom. And it is this, the king's life is equal to the newborn slaves. In God's kingdom, the king's life is equal to the life of a newborn slave. That is radical, super radical. And the midwives, because they fear God, they disobey Pharaoh's order. They don't kill the boys, which is something else that's super radical. They are essentially ascribing to the belief of the God who is everywhere, the God who is not territorially bound, which again, all of us, we grew up in a context of monotheism. So that's sort of Um, It's hard to see, but in this day and age, each nation had their own gods. So you had the gods of uh, the Canaanites, and you had the gods of the Philistines, and you had the gods of Egypt. And the gods of the Canaanites, they had power in Canaan, but they didn't have power in Egypt. And the gods of the Philistines, they had power in, in Philistia, but not in Egypt. And what we have here in the very first page, the very first chapter of Exodus, is the belief, the, 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 the contour, the foundation of a God who is not bound by territory, the God who is sovereign everywhere, the God who is found in human hearts. His territory is in the human person as such, which is super Um, new for its time. So just a brief recap. The story opens with a family having become a nation. It opens with a monarch who's forgotten his history or misremembered his history. And he's turned a person into a type, into an other. He fears losing his power And therefore, he issues a horrifying executive order, which is the result of his fear. And that order goes disobeyed by two women who fear a God who Pharaoh knows nothing about, more than they fear Pharaoh. And by their disobedience of Pharaoh's order, you see something, you see the introduction of a political theory that is super radical that of that every human life is equal. And you see the introduction of a theological idea, the idea of a God who is not territorially bound, a God who is everywhere. And into this, I mean, hopefully you see, I'm I'm trying to lay it on thick, 
but I'm also trying to allow you to do some imaginative work. Because it's, if it's a paradigm, friends, you should be able to see in this story your own story or stories that we're a part of every day or stories that we read about. That's the point. That's the point. And into this context, a savior is born. Moses. You, you knew I had to do it, guys. Come on. You knew I had to do it. For those of you who don't, some of y'all are like, what? I don't get it. That's, uh, that's my new dog, Moses. And uh, yeah, all right. Thanks, Moses. He's, he's adorable, right? Isn't he adorable? Come on. Yeah. <laughs> but into this context, a child is born. A savior is born. A Levite man marries a Levite woman. And they give birth to a child. And we're told in the text that she saw that he was good. She saw that he was good. And after she nurses him for three months and realizes that she can't keep him, she built an ark for him. It's interesting, friends. The language in these verses echoes back Genesis. Echoes when God creates the world and what? He sees that it's good. He sees that human life is good. She saw that human life is good. And when she couldn't hide him anymore, she built an ark, a teva is the Hebrew word. You see that word two times in all of the Old Testament. When Noah was told to build the ark, the teva, and is saved through the flood, and now Moses is put in an ark and saved in waters. And we're gonna talk about in just a couple weeks the way God likes to save us through water. Some of y'all already are picking up what I'm putting down. So Moses is born and he's put in the ark and the Egyptian princess discovers him. And then from that point in this little, this little episode, we see no less than five women who demonstrate the utmost courage. Shipra and Pua, who we already talked about, who defined the, defied the king's order. The mother's courage to keep her son, even though she was risking her life. Moses' sister's courage, who approaches the Egyptian princess and presents an opportunity. Just so you know, guys, in this day, Hebrew slaves and slave, slave girls were not in the habit of walking up to Egyptian princesses and presenting an option for them. The courage of her to approach an Egyptian princess goes like, hey, I have an idea for you. And then lest we forget, and this is super important, hold on to this one. The Egyptian princess herself, who saves Moses, she too was defying her dad's order. Her dad, who is reality himself. Her dad, who is half God, half man. Her dad, whose edicts, whose orders better go obeyed. She too defies that. So from the very early on, we see another theme of this story, of this paradigm. That the hated enemy plays a crucial role in God's work. Or as Rabbi Sachs says, nothing could signal more powerfully that the Torah is not an ethnocentric story. That the God who is not a God of a territory, the God who transcends territories is the God of all people. 
The God who transcends territories is found in human hearts, even when they don't recognize it. Friends, by the Egyptian princess adopting Moses and the the Jewish people telling the story truthfully, we see that the author will not allow the Egyptian to become the other. The author won't allow the Egyptian to become a type. You see? You see where I'm going with that? That even in this, in this world that we find ourselves in, of categories, of types, of oppressor and oppressed, the author won't allow the oppressor to become a type either. They have names, they have histories, and the author can be found in them as well. Tyranny cannot destroy humanity. Everything and everyone is neutral. There are no lines. Our decisions define who we are. Even the enemy will not become a type. And that echoes when Jesus tells us Christians, his followers, when your enemy is hungry, give them something to eat. When they're thirsty, give them something to drink. I'll work out vengeance later. I'll work out judgment. That's not for you. And then we get to the name of Moses, which is really fascinating. We're told that the Egyptian princess names him Moses, which comes from the Hebrew, Mashah, which means to draw out, because I drew him out of the water. But would an Egyptian princess know Hebrew? Maybe, maybe. But in, uh, in the Egyptian language, Meses means birth or uh, to bear or son of. And we know, so like the, 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 uh, the Pharaoh of Egypt, Ramses, is Ra plus Meses, son of Ra. Moses is uh, plus Meses. Who is he the son of? Whose God is he? Already we see some foreshadowing of the God who will approach him and say, you cannot say my name. I'm the God who, you don't know my name. I am who I am. And I'm getting ahead of myself here, but it's a really interesting foreshadowing early on. So we begin with the battle of two sons of God, if you will. Christ and Antichrist, maybe. We begin with a battle. We are immediately plunged into a civil war, a rebellion of the territorial gods against the God who is not confined by territory, who is found in human hearts, every human heart, who's found in the heart of the newborn slave and is found in the heart of the oppressive king who thinks he's God. This God is not bound by the the, the territories and the lines that we draw up for him. And this God has chosen a people as his special instrument. And since we know our history, We awaken to the middle of a story that we don't have all the details about, but we're picking up hints. We're picking up threads. We're picking up themes about this God and about ourselves. Friends, the meta-narrative, the story of Exodus, is all about politics. All about politics. About the use and the misuse of power, about the powers of death and the powers of life and how they're meted out about who holds them, and as we're gonna see this battle wage throughout, about two political theories, two political theories which are tested 
in the crucible of this historical account. We're watching, we are witnessing in Exodus and in our own lives the battle of two kingdoms, one based on fear. One's based on fear. And the way you raise up and the way you build in this kingdom is by putting others down, perhaps enslaving them, perhaps killing them. Lots of different ways. The other political theory, the other kingdom, is based on love. Based on love, which does not turn people into a type. Which in fact raises up by choosing to go down and taking the form of a servant. See where I'm going with this? And within these two political theories, within these two kingdoms, one based on fear, one based on love, they battle it out. They battled it out thousands of years ago. They battled it out 2,000 years ago with Christ, with the church in Rome, and they're battling it out now. And what I want to do to end this time, and I want to invite the worship team back up, is show a video. Because I realize when you're talking about paradigm, it can be abstract. It can be very abstract. I want to show something really tangible, really concrete, which shows this battle between these two kingdoms. I want to show a video which, ironically, um, is an Egyptian newscast that comes from this past uh, April uh, on Palm Sunday when a Coptic Christian church in Egypt was bombed. And uh, I forget the number of how many people died, but there's an interview happening and the newscasters interviewing uh, a widow whose husband died in the blast. The widow's a Christian, her two sons are Christian, her husband was a Christian. And we see in this video the battle of these two political theories, the battle of these two kingdoms. So take a look. أنا فرحانة بي ومبسوطة ومش زعلانة من اللي عمل كده بقول له ربنا يسامحك أنت مغيب يا ابني أنت مغيب صدقني مغيب ومش زعلانة بس أنا بطلب من ربنا يعني اللي هو خلاص انتهى وراح بطلب من ربنا أن يعني يسامحهم ويحاولوا يفكروا شوية يفكروا يفكروا صدقيني لأن هم لو فكروا إحنا ما بنعملهمش أي حاجة صدقيني ما بنعملهمش حاجة لهم فكروا تاني فكروا إن أنتوا بتعملوه ده صح ولا غلط وربنا يسامحكم وإحنا مسامحينكم بأمانة بقولها مسامحكم وصدقيني لأن أنتوا حطيتوا لي أبو ولادي في مكان ما كنتش أتمنى العمر كله صدقيني بأمانة يعني أنا عمري أنا بفتخر بيه وبتمنى أكون أنا جنبه صدقيني يا بنتي وأشكرك يا حبيبتي أقباط مصر مصنوعين من فولاذ أقباط مصر مئات السنين بيتحملوا كوارث ومصايب كتيرة القبط المصري يعشق تراب بلده القبط المصري يتحمل كل شيء عشان وطنه وإيه كمية التسامح اللي عندكوا دي لو أعدائكم يعرفوا قد إيه أنتم متسامحين بجد ما كانش حد يصدق ده أنا لو أبويا والله ما أقول كده أبدا الناس دي عندها كمية تسامح عن حق عن عقيدة 
دول بني ادمين والله مصنوعين من ماده ثانيه الله يرحمه عم نسيم بطل وشهيد ومثل اعلى للي قاعد كل واحد في البلد دي يقول لك هي البلد دي ايه والبلد دي ماشيه ازاي البلد دي ماشيه كده البلد دي ماشيه بالصبر بالجلد بالتحمل بالست العظيمه دي بالعيال اللي خلف ما ماتش ضرباهم وعمل رجاله رجال How great is this amount of forgiveness they have? These people are made from a different substance. He's putting his finger on it, yes. The God of the Jews, the God of the Christians is calling us to live by a different standard, to live into a different kingdom, to not turn people into types, to not respond with vengeance, to respond with forgiveness because we are flowing with love. It is spilling out of us with forgiveness. It's the paradigm, friends, and we're gonna find with each passing week that what we read in the story is happening all around us, all the time. It's happening in your life. How great is this amount of forgiveness you have? If your enemy knew how much you forgave them, they would not understand it, they would not believe it. Can the same be said of us as Hope Brooklyn? Can the same be said of us as Christians? Will you join me in prayer? The Lord, who transcends boundaries, the God of everywhere, the God who says that the life of a slave is equal to the life of a king. Lord, reveal yourself even now. God, reveal yourself even now. Show us what a kingdom built upon love looks like. Show us what a kingdom built upon forgiveness looks like. Lord, as we examine a story thousands of years old, which describes a historical moment in the world, which transcends that historical moment, which is found right now in our historical moment. Would you show us, would you reveal to us, awaken us and to this story. Give us eyes to see how it's already happening, still happening. And the way you called Israel, you still call us to be people of love and forgiveness. People who do not hold on to this life because we're holding on to you and to one another. Lord, for anyone who doesn't know they believe in you, who are not sure who you are or what your story is, would you give them courage to take a step towards you? Just one step. Give them courage to say, to actually like address you and say, if you are real, show yourself to me.
Show me in the day to day. I'll take a step and meet them, Father. Show them that not only are you a God who transcends boundaries, but that you're also a father. And perhaps you've been misrepresented as you have, but call them to a place to see you with new eyes. And for those of us who are followers of you, God, Jesus, who are followers of you, would you fill us with a new sense of knowledge and of revelation of where you're at work in the world and how you're calling us to behave like Shipra and Pua. How you're calling us to behave like the Egyptian princess. Give us eyes to see how you're at work. We love you, Lord. We ask this in your name, amen.